This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. The black vote was critical in electing Joe Biden and giving Democrats control of the Senate. But now, with a crucial midterm election looming, the rights of black voters are under threat, and advocates are fighting back. Everybody's got a role to play. Not everybody can can be the journalist or be the professor or be the one who's on the mic leading the rallies or being the one that's, that's leading the civil disobedience, but everybody's got a role they can play. Black Voters Matter, coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. We're on the eve of a high-stakes midterm election with abortion, LGBTQ rights, and accountability for violent political extremists all on the ballot. For millions of African Americans, voting rights themselves are at stake this year. The success of activists in getting out the vote in critical states in 2020 fueled a backlash with many Republican officials pushing through laws to weaken voting access and dilute the power of the black vote. But voting rights activists aren't staying on the sidelines. They're coming up with new strategies to get people across their communities and across the country to the polls. One of the people leading that charge is Cliff Albright. He's the co-founder and executive director of the Black Voters Matter Fund. Cliff Albright, welcome to A Word. Hey, thanks for having me. How did you get involved in this mission, and what exactly does the Black Voters Matter Fund do day in and day out? That's a great question. There's a lot that we do, and there's different dimensions to it. And some people only know like one side of it. Like they, they know about the blackest bus in America and they say, oh, you're the people that go around all across the country uh, in that big old black bus and, and do funny events and create excitement and, and dance and sing and, and all of that. Um, and that's certainly part of it. And then there's some people that only know us for what we call the 365 work, which is the work that we do in our community, supporting local groups in uh, communities all across the country, particularly in states that are often thought of as, as being unorganized, right? But we, one of the things we always say is there's no such thing as, as a red state or unorganized states. There are states that have been under-resourced and underappreciated. And so a big part of what we do is that we partner with groups that we know are doing incredible work, but they're doing it in the, under the radar or they're doing it, you know, in, in very rural areas and they don't get a lot of attention and they don't get a lot of resources. That's why we started Black Voters Matter Fun. So there are people that know different sides of our work, but let me take it back because you asked how did I get involved in this. I'm from New York originally. I can hear and that. <laughs> you, can, you can hear that. <laughs> it comes out every now and then. Uh, but I've been in the South for 25 years now. And when I first moved down, I wasn't into electoral organizing. You know, I, I was coming from a very hard line, you know, nationalist perspective. Oh, voting's a waste of time. It's, you know, we're just getting deeper in a system that's not for us. But when I came South, I moved to Selma, Alabama, which is where my fiance was. And if you're an organizer, you can't come to a place like Selma and not take on the things that that community thinks is, are important. And in Selma, Voting was important, right? And so I had to find a way to get involved, but to get involved in a way that was consistent with like my, my activist 
background. And so, you know, we started engaging in, in elections in a way where it wasn't just about, hey, fill out this registration form. Hey, we need you to vote. You know, it wasn't just about rounding up the Negroes to vote. It was about connecting it to all the issues that we were organizing around all the time. And, and you know, we were doing tearing down racist Confederate monuments 20 years before it became a thing. You know, we were doing police brutality, we were doing housing, you name the issue, and we were organizing around it, and we found ways to incorporate that into our electoral organizing. And the thing where the, the light bulb went off for me was the very first election I was involved in was the year 2000, and that was the Selma mayor's election. And that was my first election, and when we won that election, cars stopped in the middle of the street. Black folks got out of their cars, they stopped traffic, people were, were laughing and singing and, and dancing on top of the cars, literally looked like a Super Bowl party in the, in the middle of the in the middle of city. And it was that moment where I said, you know, if we can get this electoral organizing right, where it's tied to 365 racial justice work and tied to accountability and tied to like deep canvassing and deep conversations, if we can get this right, then there's a lot of power that we can find in that. And that that's when, even though Black Voters Matter is really only five years old, going back to 2017 and the Alabama Senate race, that was our official start. But um, the theory, the approach, uh, which is grounded in Southern organizing and civil rights movement history, all of that really um, was, was birthed in me in, in going back to the year 2000. In the last couple of years, let's say since the 2020 election, Joe Biden gets elected, he beats Donald Trump, thin margins in Arizona, thin margins in Georgia, and then an explosion of new laws to suppress the vote. What's the difference between the electoral landscape in 2022 and the electoral landscape in 2020? Like, What additional hurdles do you have to organize above, around, and through in these midterms that weren't there in 2018 and certainly weren't there in 2020. Yeah, so I think, you know, I think about it in terms of, of three types of hurdles, right? There's there's one, there's the all of the administrative hurdles that have been created by the wave of voter suppression bills, right? So so all across the country, they've made it harder to register the vote, they've made it hard to vote by mail, they've made it harder to um, to to um, to show up on election day and vote, uh, as you well know, right here in in Georgia, they've of course uh, criminalized giving out food and water uh, to folks standing in lines. So there's there's all the things that have been done, you know, administratively uh, to just make every step of the process more difficult. And so you know that's that's one of the obstacles that we we have to confront. Another set of obstacles, and it's related to that, but it's it's the overall um, atmosphere of fear and intimidation that that's been created, right? So along with those administrative obstacles, you've got also got things like they've made it easier for there to be hostile poll observers, in some cases, actual poll workers, right? In other cases, people observing the poll workers. Um, and, and, and in Florida, of course, we've got the, the noted election police, right? Which is really extending something that had been done in Georgia and other places for some time. Brian Kemp, when he was Secretary of State, was notorious for having his Secretary of State's office sending out investigators. In fact, there's a whole case here called Equipment 10, uh, which was, was uh, 10 plus 2, actually, but the Equipment 10 
who were a group of, of activists and election organizers that had been prosecuted wrongly and frivolously by the state of Georgia at the time. And they're not alone, but the main thing being that you've got this intimidation, you've got the space for the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers to go out and, and act the fool. And they're recruiting these people. Like, it's, it's a part of their strike. They are recruiting people to do this intimidation. And again, in some cases, to do other illegal activities as actual poll workers. So you've got those obstacles. And then all of that combines to have a third obstacle, which is the impact that it has on our community, right? You know, when, when people say, I don't want to do this, I don't want to participate because you know, they're out to get us, it's a rigged system and, and all of that. We don't tell folks, oh, you're wrong, right? We don't try to convince them that like what they're seeing right around them, right? That their lived experience, that they're, that they're just making all of it up. There's truth to that. Now we can have a conversation about how we overcome that. But the bottom line is that part of the point of the intimidation, of making the administrative process hard to register and to go vote and all that. Part of it is to create that kind of an atmosphere within our own community where folks just kind of back away from it and disengage from it and don't want to be involved in it and even start to talk negatively about it. The suppression isn't just about the one vote that they get to suppress. No more than those 20 arrests that they did in Florida recently were just about those 20 people that they, were, that they arrested for so-called voter fraud, people that they had basically entrapped and set up. It's not just about those 20 people, it's about the other 1 million and 2 million who see that happen, that they hope that then what happens is that we become discouraged and we don't wanna participate in the process. All of those are obstacles. And the last obstacle I'll, I'll mention, which um, you know may even turn out to be the biggest, which is after all is said and done, after we've organized, after we've got people to vote, after we've actually won some of these elections, are those votes actually going to count? Because the other thing that these voter suppression bills have done is that they've made it easier to actually overturn elections. They've made it easier, like in Georgia, to actually take over a county board of elections. They've made it easier to do what Trump wanted them to do, which is go out and find me 11,700 votes. They've now made it easier to do that because we need to be clear. The reason that Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State, didn't do it wasn't because he didn't want to. Right. Because he 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 was talking about voter fraud, so-called voter fraud, long before Trump even knew what it was. Right. He would have done it if he had the power. What the Georgia voters president bill did, SB 202, it has given them the power to do exactly what the orange man wanted them to do. We're going to take a short break and we come back more on securing the black vote with activist Cliff Albright. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. I have a special announcement for you today. For a limited time, you can get six months of Slate Plus for just $29. That's 50% off. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from shows like Slow Burn, Amicus, and Political Gab Fest. Slate's podcasts cover major news events, from elections to social issues to historic court decisions. Our shows also discuss what makes a song a smash, analyze what's going viral, and decode cultural mysteries. If we've become a part of your listening routines, we ask that you support our work by joining Slate Plus. Sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com slash podcast slash a word to access all Slate's content and support our work. Again, that's just $29 for six months through October 28th. So sign up now at slate.com slash podcast slash a word. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. 
Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking about voting rights with Cliff Albright of Black Voters Matter. Cliff, I have to get into this with you. You've got this narrative that's been going on for several weeks. Black men are are becoming Republicans. Black men are leaving the Democratic Party. And it is people like Killer Mike, Ice Cube. There are these sort of examples of these black men who are supposedly saying, you know, my T-shirt and cell phone business stayed open because of Brian Kemper or Ron DeSantis. And that's why I'm going to vote for the Republican Party. Are there any numbers to back this up or are these just people talking? Because the numbers don't seem to me to show that there's any significant drop off in African-American male support for Democratic candidates. And more importantly, I don't see any numbers that suggest a huge increase in African-American men voting for Republicans. But am, am I wrong? Are there any numbers behind all these narratives? No, I, I actually agree with you, Jason. I think that, that it has been more of a narrative and one that's been fueled by, again, by, by influencers like, like Killer Mike and, and others um, that get a lot of attention. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm going to tell you, you know, and, and I live here and I do this work and I'm in the streets regularly talking to people. I haven't seen the numbers. And honestly, we haven't really seen an election where it's really borne out that, um, you know, that there's going to be this massive shift. People can talk about this poll and that poll, but at the end of the day, as we always say, polls don't vote. You know, people do. And I'm just not believing or seeing or hearing that there's been this, this major shift taking place. You know, you guys are based in Georgia, and that has become the fulcrum state in politics. What's different today about the race between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp in this year's midterm race versus the governor's race four years ago? I'm really not even sure that there's a whole lot that's different. The race four years ago was razor thin margins. We knew it was close the whole way and it's close now. The slight difference is Kemp is now an incumbent. And what does that mean? That means he's had four years to maybe, you know, shell out some favors, maybe, you know, find him a a couple of so-called black influencers or two that might, you know, talk favorably about him that caters to that segment of our community that, you know, will will go into this mythology of, oh, well, he was good for business because he reopened COVID and he helped keep a couple of black barbershops open, right? But I don't think at the end of the day that it's going to be a whole lot. I don't think he's going to dip that far into into the, the, the black vote overall or the black male vote in particular, maybe a little bit, but fundamentally, the contours of this race are, are still the same. It's still, it's still about the ability to, to expand the electorate, to reach into the changing demographics of Georgia, but to actually res- have that result in turnout. Because as we always say, um, demographics isn't destiny, right? It's not enough that, the, that the, the, the state is changing. You've got to actually do work 
to, to, to make that come out. And so I think um, at the end of the day, I think that just as Stacy surprised people four years ago with the race being closer than what they thought it was then, I think the same thing is going to happen this time around. Are there differences in how you have to message and campaign on the ground with African-American men and African-American women? And does that change? I mean, like, do we got to talk to black men in Mississippi different than we talk to black men in Georgia or North Carolina? Uh, or is it just there's some pretty consistent messaging across the board for black men and black women that black voters matter and other organizations use when you're trying to get people out to vote? Yeah. And to that, there is some truth to that. There is a difference, right? There is a difference in the way that we communicate. I mean, heck, even even taking it back a step, there is a difference in terms of that gap that exists between, you know, how black women vote and how black males vote. But as we often point out, that gap exists across races, across ethnicities, right? Um, men in general are, are more conservative than, than women are, right? In, in, in part because if you're a man in a patriarchal society, then you're, you're going to be a little bit more cool with, with status quo staying the same, right? So that exists across races, across ethnicity. So yes, there is a gap. Some of it is about the issues. Like I, I give the example a lot that, and, and we just talked about it, black men do more he heavily look at the economy issues, right? You know, they're, they're, they're concerned with entrepreneurship and, you know, and how I can make a living. Can I provide? And part of that is based in uh, gender stereotypes, right? And, 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 and gender roles and, oh, I got to be a man. I got to be able to provide. And so there's more of an emphasis with brothers on that economic point. That doesn't mean the sisters don't care about the, the economics, right? They clearly, they care about putting food on the table as well, but it's, it's not as much of a defining feature of their, of their womanhood as it is with brothers and, and this sense of, of manhood. You know, the healthcare issues, you know, will be something that, that sisters will be more responsive to. Again, partially because of gender roles in, in the society, right? So yes, the issues that we talk about it and even the ways that we that we talk about it, and, and where we talk about it, right? Um, all of those things play a part in being able to message. And I think what candidates and parties often do wrong is that they don't understand those those nuances and or, or they don't even try to deal with them. And they just, um, you know, they just feel like, well, I can just focus on black women because you know if, if i can get black women then i'm gonna get the black men and, and there's truth that we we know that our sisters when they go vote when they organize that they organize a whole community but you know too many candidates i think think that they can just like not try to target black men and that somehow that's gonna end well and that's not a winning recipe so you know one of the other things that i think is is a, a stereotype or or misinformation that's out there about voting organizing today is that it's less dangerous. What are some of the, the physical, actual physical threats and danger that you still face with Black Voters Matter when you're just trying to get people registered to vote? I tell you, Jason, we drive around and we say it all the time, the blackest bus in America, right? And and we go to places that a lot of, a lot of like, sometimes candidates won't go to and, and other organizations won't go to. And, and it's not just the places that we go like for our stops, right? But oftentimes it's where we're driving through. Like literally recently, we just did a tour in Texas and then we drove up to Missouri. 
like you're going through more than one sundown towns and so there's some very real threats that we face like traveling around doing this work we had an experience on the highway during the first year in 2018 when we first did our first bus tour when we were traveling from alabama back home to georgia and a car drove past in the middle of the night and threw something at our bus and cracked the window and that was before we you know we had our security precautions in place but i'll tell you we've had it since then there's also the the threats like even within a community when folks are just canvassing their neighborhoods right there's um we we had one of our partners in georgia that was doing rides to the polls and actually was very creative because he had gotten the funeral home to donate some of the some of the funeral home vehicles to do rides to the polls just stopped off in a neighborhood like literally just to say hi to some folks and all of a sudden there were eight patrol cars you know there are dangerous confrontations that winds up happening because at the end of the day what do we know as a fact we know that this law enforcement has been infiltrated uh, by some of these same elements, KKK, Proud Boys, Oath Keepers. And I'm saying infiltrated, but that's always been the case. All kinds of threats, both legal threats as well as physical threats and physical threats coming from outside forces as well as physical threats coming from actual law enforcement agencies. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more with Cliff Albright of Black Voters Matter. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with Cliff Albright of the Black Voters Matter Fund. I want to get a little personal. Cliff, earlier this year, you wrote for The Guardian about battling cancer and how that's made your work, the long days, the crowd of protests, sometimes getting arrested, even more hazardous. And then we're also still in the midst of a pandemic. Was there ever a moment where you thought, like, maybe I got to sit this one out or, or maybe I should take it easy? What's that been like for you? There have been a lot of moments like that, uh, you know, in the article that you mentioned, I wrote about like, a, you know, we were doing a direct action fighting for the federal voting rights legislation and we were facing arrests. And I really had to think about it because one of the cancers, I have two forms, it, you know, makes me immunocompromised and being immunocompromised and, and in the midst of COVID, you know, being at the D.C. jail wasn't necessarily the, the place I needed to be for our overnight stay, but we needed for, for that series of demonstrations that we were doing, we, we needed to, to see it through. And, you know, and, and I was told afterwards that my decision to see it through helped other folks. There were five of us that got arrested that day. And I also have to think about like what the impact is on those around me, on, you know, on my staff and, and other team members. I mean, really it's just forcing me to do, and, and the reason I wrote about it is because it's forcing me to do what we all need to be doing on a more regular basis, right? Which is being mindful about our health, about our self-care, about making sure that we're eating right and, and exercising, that we're not letting this work and this battle against white supremacy, you know, uh, defeat us. Even when we get the political victories, if it winds up defeating us in terms of our, our health and our minds and, and our emotional well-being, then we've lost the battle, right? And so just really having to reflect on that. And, and I want to be more public about talking about healthcare and, and, and wellness in general, but in particular about the prevalence of cancer and the disproportionality of cancer. Uh, I just saw a story talking about the president's uh, cancer moonshot, which I respect and appreciate like deeply, personally, at a personal level. You know, I appreciate that. I appreciate his experience with his family dealing with the, the scourge of, of, of cancer. You know, we need to have some conversations around this illness 
in particular and how it impacts our communities and the ways that we need to respond at a personal level, at a community level, and yes, at a political and at a policy level. You know, it's interesting when you were talking about that and you were saying the the sometimes level of frustration that, that people have when they're, they're putting in this work and putting in this time, sacrificing their lives and bodies, only to oftentimes, at least on the part of the black community, get people in office who, who take our issues and put them on the back burner. What do you say to people who feel frustrated, black folks in particular, who are like, I can't vote for the Republicans because they just want me dead, right? But at the same time, I'm voting for Democrats who want me to literally put my body my health, my soul on the line to get these folks in office, and yet I'm a secondary third or 12th priority once they're in there. The first thing I say is, look, I, I feel you. I feel the same way. I, I do this work every day, every year, and I still feel those those same things. And, and, I, and I say it, and I always say that because it's important that we, we affirm that frustration, right? That we don't try to talk over it or sidestep it, that we, we you got to affirm that that frustration, because it's real. That's real talk. Um, but then, you know, we continue the conversation and our team will try to focus like what what are the specific things that you want and, and what are the ways that we can get there? Right. And at the end of the day, you know, we can't get around that there are people in power who have the resources and the ability to take action on the things that we want. And then we talk about like, what are the things that we have gotten done? Like, cause we, we said that in Georgia, look y'all, if we get these two Senate seats, we're going to be able to get George Floyd and we're going to be able to get, you know, COVID and, and healthcare. And we're going to be able to get voting rights. And it turned out that we only got one out of those, <laughs> one out of those three, but there are things that we actually got. Right. So, and let's talk about that. Like, let's talk about infrastructure and how, you know, how that creates the opportunity so that we can deal with situations like Jackson and like Flint and the many other communities that don't have water. Like we did that. We made that possible. Let's talk about that. We now have a Supreme Court justice named Katanji. And, you know, while, while some might say that that's just a symbolic thing, that's just an individual, that's an individual that's going to have a say on, you know, the law of the land for, for about the next 40 and hopefully longer years right and we, we're already seeing the power of having her voice on that court like we saw you know a week or two ago when she dismantled <laughs> the notions of of original intent and the 14th amendment and so on and so forth so that's a real thing let's talk about the fact that because black folks showed out in state after state and this president is office which also means that there's a certain department of justice who i've been i've been highly critical of right for a number of reasons but at the end of the day the people that killed brianna taylor they go into jail, right? And that does not happen if you still have the, the disgraced, twice impeached guy still in the White House. That's real, right? Um, and, and, and just a range of things, child tax credit and, and, and student debt loan forgiveness, not what we want it to be. But again, it's real tangible. Some people might say, right? It's real. And that would not have happened if you had somebody, so there are some very real things that we have gotten for our communities. We did that because we were able to get power and we need to get a little bit more power to get some more stuff. And that's the way it works, right? When we, when we use our power, when we express ourselves, when we come together, we get some stuff done. And then in order to get some more stuff done, we got to do a little bit more work and we got to hold folks accountable from the White House on down to, to city council and, and other local positions. And that's the conversation that we have so that folks can see, you know, it's not a waste of time. 
that sometimes we don't get everything we wanted, but we get some stuff and then we just have to keep pushing to, to until we can get to the vision that we have for this society and what it is that we really want for our community. And it's, it's, it's a slow process sometimes. And, um, and it's not a steady one directional process, right? We, we see that there are, sometimes we go backwards, voting rights get taken away, right? Women's uh, abortion rights get taken away, you know, privacy rights, um, um, they mess around, you know, contraception and who you can marry and all of that. Um, you know, it can go backwards. And so that's why we, we say, you know, we got to be constantly vigilant. You know, we got to be constantly engaged. We got to be able to identify what it is we want. We got to hold folks accountable. But, you know, we can't give up on on whether or not we're going to even participate in this process. Not 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 just for the good of the country. Right. Because truth be told, black folks have always been the force that has moved this democracy closer to what it was supposed to be and what it often pretends that it is. We've always played that role, but it's not, we don't do it for the country. It's like we say on the back of our shirts and on the back of those signs that it's about us. And that's what it's about, you know, and it's about us just continuing to, to, to push. So we've gotten some stuff and we got to get some more stuff. Like what's the, you know, the saying, the saying in the movement was, um, you know, we, we not where we want to be. We not where we going to be. But thank God we ain't where we were. So we just got to keep that, that push going. Is there anything else that you want people to know that they should be doing besides having registered and besides going out to vote? What's another thing people should be doing right now to ensure we have a result this midterm that advances our democracy and advances our rights rather than throws us back? The main thing is that, you know, it's not just about whether or not you register. It's not just about whether or not you vote. Certainly, we want everybody to do that, right? But the thing that we do, and, and, and wherever we go, we always talk about our five friends pledge. We want everybody we touch to tell five other people, right? To spread the word to five other people. We, we literally, you know, when we have events, we give out our shirts based on people, not just connecting with us and texting us or signing up with us. They have to forward that information that we send them, that link, that graphic, whatever it is, they've got to connect with five other people, right? That's why we always say, you know, when you see these shirts out there, you better believe that whoever's wearing that shirt has worked. They've done something. Even if that something was just that they reached out to their five friends, their family. I say it all the time. Put it in a group chat. Your group chat, you go on your phone with mama and them. Go on and drop it in there. But we got to make sure that everybody's reaching out to at least five. Sometimes we say ten. But to reach out to other folks because that's, that's how we build an army. That's how we create the kind of energy and the kind of buzz that it takes so that, you know, being involved in this process is it's the thing you don't want to be the person that didn't do. You don't want to be that person, right? You don't want to be the person on the, in the, at the family circle that, that didn't do anything because everybody's got a role to play. Not everybody can, can be the journalist or be the professor or be the one who's on the mic leading the rallies or being the one that's, that's leading the civil disobedience, but everybody's got a role they can play. Maybe they're the ones that cook the meals for the, for the gathering, for the town hall that we're doing. Maybe they're the ones that do the artwork for the graphic, or maybe they're the ones who all they did was that they spread the word to five folks and then they stayed in conversation with those five folks for two weeks and for three weeks, all the way up to election day or whenever it is that those folks participate or afterwards to do the accountability piece. Everybody has a role to play. Everybody we touch is an organizer. There's no degree, there's no PhD 
and being a community organizer that makes you an official you know organizer if you've got the ability to share the word to tell five friends to walk into the barbershop and have the courage in the midst of the folks watching the football game or whatever's on at the time to say hey y'all uh, uh we, we could do this voting thing how many of us could go out and vote to 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 be the person that that generates that discussion everybody's got the ability to, to play a part in this everybody we touch is an organizer and when we do that our history shows us that we win Cliff Albright is the executive director of the Black Voters Matter Fund. Thank you so much for that blessing of an interview. Thank you so much, Cliff. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's senior director of operations for podcasts. Alicia Montgomery is the vice president of audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word.